Yeah, I, I would say for me, that was definitely my aha moment. I would say for us as a company, our aha moment, because like we were, you know, we wanted to build a chat platform. We knew that we wanted to be ubiquitous. We knew that. So we were thinking we should open sources. We need open sources. I say as a company, our aha moment was talking to Sid from GitLab, where he was the one I think really pushing my co-founder Ian, like, no, 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 you know, you guys should definitely open source and you should go all whole hog and do it like this. And, you know, here's how to do it. And I think I think for us, that was sort of like, at least for me, that was like the nail in the coffin. Like, yeah, we should do this. Um, and so I think, I would say personally for me, it was like the aha moment was exactly that. Like when we sold my last company and realized like, man, like I'm t- you know, I'm getting a lot of benefit from this, but you know, so a lot of other people did a lot of amazing work to, for me to get that benefit. And so for me, that was, you know, feeling almost you know, guilty, like I said, standing on the backs of these other people. Um, and so for me, that was a personal aha moment. And I say, like I said, as a company, it was, I think what cemented it was talking to Sid in the early days from GitLab. So. With me on the show today is Corey Hewlin. Corey is the founder and CTO of Mattermost. Corey, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks for having me today. So let's start at the beginning, because I find that's where most stories start. Um, when you were younger, was technology something you were always interested in, or was that something you came to later in your life? No, for me, it was pretty young. I, I don't know, before junior high, maybe late elementary school. My dad was one of those people didn't know anything about computers, but it's like, my kids are going to have like the best computer in the world, and just went down and, and bought us a really nice computer, not knowing anything on Apple IIe at the time, not knowing really anything about it. And it was, I was probably, a lot of it was from my uncle. My uncle's been in tech for a long time. I mean, I can remember as a kid thinking, you know, he was super cool, showed up in a, had to have been a 1980s Corvette or whatever. And I was just like, oh, this is the best. Um, So ever since a young age, I definitely dabbled in it, was interested in, you know, all the way back to where I'd even get magazines and like type in all the computer code. I wouldn't know anything, wouldn't know what's going on. Just like that kind of cool old stuff. Okay. So at what point did, you would you say you crossed over from you know just copying down and inputting other people's code to where you actually started kind of experimenting on your own and seeing what you could do? I would say for me, high school, like I, like like I said, I did a lot of that stuff, but it wasn't until high school where I got into some computer computer classes and stuff like that, um, where I think I really started like, hey, I think I actually might want to go to college for this or, or or do more in this field. And that for me, that was probably the transitioning point where I realized it was something I really liked. It was something I seem to be pretty good at. So I started from that point on kind of uh, at least making it a really big interest of mine, not necessarily a career at that point, but definitely, uh, definitely interest. So I assume you studied something in computer science when you went to university? Yeah, yeah. Computer science background, yeah, major. <laughs> yeah. So you get out of university. And obviously, at this point, you're now looking for a job in the field. Where did you first land? My first land, my first job was at a, a startup, a little tiny company called Tradium that got by vertical Mat. Mm-hmm. which was actually a pretty big public company. Um, so that was my, my sort of first experience in all that. It was, in, it was your, you know, it was your classic, you know, dot-com 2.0 startup, you know, 2000s, crazy stuff going on, you know, saw all that experience, joined right out of college, and then dot-com bubble burst, watched, went, rode through all that. Uh, and then one of my former managers who I used to work for at that company actually went to work for Microsoft. And so I ended up following him to Microsoft. So that's kind of my initial start in this, this industry. Kind of like coming in at, I always like to tell a joke or tell a, you know, I came in at the peak, like our company, the company I joined got bought, I don't know, six weeks later to a public company. That public company, I rode the stock from $187 all the way down to one. <laughs> and when it hit $1, that's when I'm like, eh, maybe I should look for another job. <laughs> Yeah, those were kind of crazy times where companies would pop up and be bought and sold and, you know, mergers were happening and just it was total chaos at that point. Nobody knew what was going to happen. They just knew they wanted to be involved somehow and we got to get in on it. Um, And yeah, it was rough there. I remember after things kind of started to subside, there was like this big panic of like, oh, no, is our industry over? And it's like, no, 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 it's not over. It, It will survive. Computers are not going away. They're not a fad. We'll, we'll keep using them. Yeah. So when you when you found yourself at Microsoft, what did you what did you start doing there? I worked in the office division, so Microsoft Office stuff like that. I worked on um, well, business corporate manager at the time, then stuff that eventually became parts of SharePoint and stuff like that. So 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a fun experience because that was kind of like a new division that was started. So, you know, I, I started reporting to a VP when it was really small. There's only like three of us. And that organization grew within Microsoft to I don't know, close to 200, probably 250. I don't know what it finished at. But but uh, that was a fun experience to kind of see a, a startup within a large company and kind of go through that whole ex- experience all the way to being sort of integrated into SharePoint at the end of the day. So, yeah, mm-hmm. crazy ride. Now, that, that would have been... <laughs> Uh, you were at Microsoft under Balmer, correct? I, I joined uh, when Gates was still there and still okay. doing a lot of this stuff. In fact, I never got to go to a Bill G review, but my VP did, and I sat outside the, the door while they were there, <laughs> which is cool. Uh, so I, I was in that transition period, yeah. So okay. I spent most of my career is under Balmer, but my first maybe year, maybe even two, I'd have to look, was, was under Bill G. So, yeah. Now, obviously, Gates and Balmer had some rather strong opinions about uh, open source. And you are now working at an open source company, yep. so obviously that's that's a transition and a and, and a line that I wanna I wanna dig into. But yeah. at what point do you think you first kind of understood the open source concept? Was that in university? Was that after you got to Microsoft? When did that kind of happen? I would say my first sort of understanding of it was definitely university. Fooling around with Linux, especially a bunch of classes taught on it, operating system classes, stuff like that. So I got introduced to it. I didn't necessarily understand the concept of it. But I thought it was really cool to be able to go look at the source code of an operating system and just stuff like that, right? Not not necessarily connecting the dots at that time, but just getting the use and the power and the foundation of like, ah, this is a super powerful concept of like looking at somebody else's source code and me being able to learn from that. So I'd say that kind of like probably laid some of the foundation. Um, and then I'm really proud of where actually Microsoft is today, but I served under the you're right. I served on the Empire where it was very anti-open source. <laughs> and, I, and I'm very proud of like sort of the pivot they've done and where they are today. Um, but I was there when, you know, it was the, you know, non invented beer syndrome kind of stuff. Um, um, and that, that's actually one of the reasons why I left the company What was exactly that. Like you just saw a bunch of the interesting stuff going on around you. Um, and that, yeah, that was one of the main reasons why it was. It was very amazing place to work. I still love it. Still have a lot of friends there. Mm-hmm. Nothing bad to say against it, but was also just from a career perspective or interest perspective, was like, ah, I really want to go do something else. And like I said, the, the golden handcuffs there and everything else make it really hard to do. <laughs> but but, uh, but I did it at the end of the day. So if I don't ask, someone will will fuss at me. Since you mentioned, you know, playing around with, with Linux and university, do you happen to remember like the first distro that you used? Because people are always interested as what is the first experience that someone had? Do you remember? I do not. Actually, that's a very good question. Yeah. Okay. No, I don't. I do not. Hmm. No, I'm gonna, whatever I say, I'm going to get it wrong. I have to go back and look. I probably have notes or stuff that goes back, but no, it's been, no, it's been so long. Okay, that's fine. It, I mean, that was a long time ago, you know. Sometimes I forget how many years have gone by since since those early days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for me, it was a very long time ago. So. <laughs> so, obviously, when you were at Microsoft, we all understand in the in the Linux world and the open source world, kind of the the mentality and the perspective of, you know, Gates and Balmer and their attitudes. But did that attitude kind of trickle down to the engineers or were the engineers like, did they have those same views or was it just, I'm here because this is a job and it's well-paying and I'm, I, you know, enjoy the code I'm working on? I, I think there's probably some mix in between, like in the sense that the, the, I would say the majority of engineers didn't necessarily share that view. But I think there was, you have to understand too, this was like when I was there was under the, we had just gotten through the antitrust stuff. Um, and so there was a large like contingent of lawyery things that you were not allowed to do. Look at others, people's source code was one of those because they're mm-hmm. not because like philosophically they were opposed to it. It's more just, they were so worried about legality of of getting sued at that time that it was pretty staunch like, you can't look at this stuff. Don't even talk about it. And it was more of a lawyer business decision than a tech decision at that point. That yeah, for a business, you definitely need to be able to show, you know, clean room implementation. We didn't look at somebody else's stuff and some of that maybe got stuck in somebody's head and then ended up in ours. Yeah. So like, I completely understand why it's the no, 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 don't, don't, go, don't go there. Yeah. So I would say it was shut down. From my experience, like it was shut down pretty early in the, like exactly just because of the, the lawyer aspects of it they're just like nope don't don't even go there and that, i think they were still trying to figure everything out too they you know they had just like i said i, I was there just as like maybe a year after the the office ie uh, 
suit sort of finished up. In fact, I used to sit across from the office where the DOJ people would come in and audit. Oh. They still had the right to come in and audit software and stuff like that. It used to frustrate me because there'd be all these empty this is at the time where like, you know, offices were really impacted and people were sharing offices because Microsoft was growing so fast. And like there was these amazing offices across from us that were always empty. And they were, you know, they, they were required to be empty so that those people could come in and sit down and audit. And it was just frustrating. So <laughs> when when you were at uh, Microsoft, you said you're working on the SharePoint. Now you have to forgive me. I'm not I'm not up on SharePoint, but that is what is what aspect? How does that relate to Office as most people would know? Yeah, so under I actually work for business applications under Office. So there was a bunch of applications, Performance Point, Business Scorecard Manager, that all kind of got rolled into I think SharePoint. Um, and like I said, this is at the tail end of my service, so even my memory mm-hmm. is nasty on this stuff. Um, but it's basically anything to do with business applications running in Microsoft Office. Um, um, so these would be like budgeting, planning, forecasting, scorecarding um, um, applications within Office. So that that's kind of where my strength is, is our, you know, like business intelligence. Um, I have tons of patents for Microsoft around BI. Um, and so we were really, we were really intertwined with, at least in those days, basically bridging between Microsoft Office and the, the SQL Server group or the BI group there. Um, and that's kind of where we spent a lot of our stuff. So a lot of like pivot stuff, like, I didn't do this, but the team that I ran went on to eventually own and maintain uh, pivot tables in Excel and stuff like that. So it was already written way, way before I got there, but but our team ended up maintaining some of that stuff. So that was post me, but it basically got all merged into underneath SharePoint and then it all got changed. And this is all after me. And then I got mm-hmm. to Office 365. They're kind of reordering at that time for Office 365. And I'm in Azure and stuff like that. And that was, you know, that's really thanks to the right Aussie, right? He came in. I don't even remember. I don't remember what the code name of it was, but I remember first thinking like, this is weird. What are we doing? Like, you know, and he was, it wasn't called Azure at the time, but it was something else. I don't remember. And there's like, no, we need to be doing this cloud stuff. And I remember even me at the time, like, what? This is weird. What? Um, but, you know, I'm glad they did it. So I can definitely see how coming from that kind of business focused mindset, how that led to Mattermost, which kind of focuses explicitly on business, you know, communication and stuff inside of business. But before we jump there, I did have I did have another question. I think maybe you've got a better perspective on from me having worked in both open source and closed source uh, businesses. And that is, do you notice any difference in like the collaboration of the developers internally when a project is closed source or open source? I've always been curious because whenever I've worked at a company that's done open source software, it's been open source. I've never worked at a closed source company. I've always been curious if being aware of the transparency of everything leads to differences in how the developers themselves work internally. Yeah, 100%. So so I am guilty of this. I know many of my former colleagues at Microsoft are guilty of this, which is like, it is the bare minimum to get the the code you need done to get whatever it is done and checked in, right? And, and, And so there's no afterthought of it. It's very much like I need to meet this expectation. I need to do it quickly as possible. Um, and that that's very different when you start talking about open source, when you, when there's like some personal pride with your name attached to the pull request, right? Where you're like, wait a minute, like this might have a thousand eyeballs looking at it. Do I really want to be known for this? <laughs> you know? And so I, I think that, um, that fear causes you to go the extra mile to do more, not not just in terms of cleanliness or or anything like that, but also just in terms of thinking through all the angles, things like security. And we still, you know, I've been responsible for introducing tons of security bugs to you, but like, you know, we all still do it. But like, there's just a different like methodicalness, at least for me, and I think this is very true for at least our team too. There's a different level of methodicalness that you go through because you know it's going to be open source, right? You know this is going out in the public. Um, and so, you know, yeah, I think there's a very big difference, like I said. And 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 don't get me wrong, like there was really great engineers in Microsoft and there was actually a lot of great code. Like, you know, the company wouldn't exist without it. So right. people can sit there and bash them however they want. But like, but, but you know, and there's a lot of testing and a lot of stuff that made sure it was really high quality. But there was also a lot of things where you're like, I just need to get this in and no one's going to see it. So like, you know, go commit. <laughs> and as if, if it works, you know, no way would ever complain, right? <laughs> Unless you inherit code base maybe 15 years old or something like that, but yeah. The only, the only downside to kind of the open source mindset is a, a lot of the times, because it is so open, sometimes, and I, I admit I've, I'm guilty of this, you know, occasionally in my mind, is 
Uh, it's okay. Somebody else will, will send in a PR to, to fix if there's a cleaner way to do this. Because I can I can rely on the community to do that. I can I can I can you know I can check out on this one. It's not a big deal. Um, so for yourself, what kind of made you want to move from kind of that closed source working in a closed source mindset to working in the open source? I would say a big thing for me was so after I left Microsoft, um, I, I went. Um, I became an ER at Stanford Research. We spun out a company there called Tempo AI. Uh, very, very minor success, but we sold ourselves to Salesforce, right? And I always remember through that experience, like when you, you know, I always like to explain to people, like when you look at the pyramid or, or triangle of technology of what we spun out and sold to Salesforce, 90 plus percent of it was open source. Like we were standing on the backs of open source giants, right? Only the little tip top, like less than 10% was this cool, Stanford Research AI, right? And, and I understand, like, I'm not, I'm not a dummy. Like, you can march an intellectual property lawyer in here and they can tell me, Corey, you don't understand. Only that tip top piece has any value, blah, blah, blah. I get it. I get it, right? From the business standpoint. But as a technologist, it was like, it was like, man, but you don't understand. Like, I'm, we're standing on the backs of these people and having, you know, huge, huge success. So I know for me, like, when that, when that, when that came to an end, it was just one of those things in my mind where it's like, man, I really want, to contribute back to this community that has helped me, like it's a very, very minor success, but has helped made me successful. And for me, that's one of the, that's one of the personal things for me where I feel very satisfied. You know, if, if I die tomorrow or Mattermost, the company dies tomorrow, you know, Mattermost, the open source project will live on. And I'm, and my hope is that somebody will build something on top of Mattermost or our code base or whatever, and have the success that I had building on top of other things at the time. So, so a lot of a lot of open source people that I talk to kind of always have this kind of aha moment where they're like, that was when, you know, everything aligned and it clicked and they got it. Would you say that was kind of your aha moment? Yeah, I, I would say for me, that was definitely my aha moment. I would say for us as a company, our aha moment, because like we were, you know, we wanted to build a chat platform. We knew that we wanted to be ubiquitous. We knew that. So we were thinking we should open source this. We need open sources. I say as a company, our aha moment was talking to Sid from GitLab. Where he was the one I think really pushing my co-founder Ian, like, no, no, you know, you guys should definitely open source and you should go all whole hog and do it like this. And you know, here's how to do it. And I think I think for us that was sort of like, at least for me, that was like the nail in the coffin. Like, yeah, we should do this. Um, and so I think I would say personally for me, it was like the aha moment was exactly that. Like when we sold my last company and realized, like, man, like I'm you know, I'm getting a lot of benefit from this, but you know, so a lot of other people did a lot of amazing work to, for me to get that benefit. And so for me, that was the you know, feeling almost you know guilty, like I said, standing on the backs of these other people. Um, and so for me, that was a personal aha moment. And I say, like I said, as a company, it was, I think what cemented it was talking to Sid in the early days from GitLab. So Now, when you were speaking with Sid from GitLab, when when did that fit kind of in the timeline of Mattermost? Because I've, I've heard uh, when Ian has talked about history, how the company pivoted at a point yeah. to what it is now. So was that before that? Was that after that? Was that kind of during that? That was right during that. So so we were, the company was a games company before. Um, and I would say right, like all around all that time frame is when all this kind of stuff happened. Like, um, 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 yeah. And then so it, I should go back and I should wrote it down for better. <laughs> but I'd say all this happened within, it sounds like a long time, but it's probably a very short amount of time, like three to six months time where, where you know, we were, we were, uh, exiting the games business. Uh, I came on board during that time to kind of go do this new thing. Um, and that's when we were talking to Sid. Um, and th that's kind of when all this Mattermost stuff kind of took off. So Now, I, I don't want to say that Mattermost is, is pivoting again, but it does kind of feel like that because when I first heard of Mattermost, it was a, you know, an open source chat program for businesses to use, to collaborate. And then all of a sudden you're now doing DevOpsy things. So, like, is this, would you consider this a, a pivot, more just adding other things, more trying to focus in on what businesses need? How would, like, how do you encapsulate what Mattermost is now? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. It's maybe the best to go back and kind of tell a story of how we got here. Like, like okay. a lot of people don't realize, like, we envisioned Mattermost from the very beginning as a platform. The original repository was named platform. The original binary that got built was named platform. So we just always envision it as this platform. So if you imagine Mattermost as sort of a channel-based or topic-based communication platform, right? And, and I think channel-based, topic-based, a la chat, is the best internal company communication platform. Email is probably still the best outside our company, 
But within a company, I think a channel-based or topic-based system, all on Mattermost, is like the best, right? And so part of our thinking back then was exactly that. Like, we want this to be ubiquitous. Like, we should open source it, right? And from the very beginning, we always had that concept of, if this was a platform, what other you know, open source applications would you build on top of this platform? Like I said, my background is actually AIBI. I have, I don't know, 20 plus patents in that area. So we like to say things like, you know, what would it look like to build conversational AI on top of Mattermost? What would it look like to build business analytics on top of, of Mattermost, right? Both me and my co-founder are ex-Microsoft, right? So we love to say what's, that's the one thing Microsoft taught us really well. We use the word suite, right? Like what suite of open source applications would you build on top of this? And when we say that, you know, we're an open source company, so we could go blindly copy a project management tool and open source it. But that's not what I mean. What I mean was, and we get into this like with what we call focal board or Mattermost boards, which is like, if you were to reimagine a product management, project management, sorry, or Kanban board style application built on top of a communication platform like Mattermost, like how would you imagine that? How would you build it differently? Um, and that's what, like, that was, you know, a large part of our series B pitch several years ago. Um, we're just now getting to the sort of executing that strategy. Um, obviously, our strong point has always been sort of developers, for developers, by developers. And I use the word developer very loosely. It's maybe more technical audiences or innovative R&D organizations. But that, that's the sort of collaboration space that we really want to own. So it's for us, it's always been more than chat. Um, you know, it's always been things like agile, you know, software project management. It's been things like we have another... Um, product and market called playbooks, which is basically workflows or checklists or workflows for DevOps style people. So I think we've been kind of, you're right, like we kind of found a large bid, a large sort of, we kind of fell backwards into a very successful Mattermost sort of chat or persistent chat. Um, but we always, from the very beginning, you know, kind of envisioned it as a bunch, as a lot bigger than that. I think now we're kind of finally getting around to executing on that strategy. Well, I, I really hope you guys can pull off that kind of integration of those things because every time I have seen, and I see this combination all the time of the Atlassian tools of like Jira and Confluence and Slack, and it never works well. It's always a disaster. So much stuff ends up getting duplicated because it just doesn't work well together. Yeah. That it, it does seem like there needs to be something that works and it's just kind of integrated from the get-go instead of, Oh, well, we'll use this weird plugin on this side and we'll use this other weird plugin on this side. And hopefully the two plugins can communicate with each other and actually do what we want them to do. I think you hit the nail on the head. Like what we find, especially when we look at our target audience, like, like I said, developers, right? They want Formula One race cars. They don't want Ford Pintos or, you know, Honda Civics, right? They want the best tools. They want the fastest tools and they want tools that are just naturally fit together, right? And it's best to come from, from, I think it's best to come from one platform and one suite like that. We obviously have a lot of integrations too, like with all those other vendors and tools um, and, you know, to help sort of supplement. But I think at the end of the day, when you look at the core things you do, like it's all, it's always actually even a running joke in our organization. Even if we take the time slice for an engineer, like in Mattermost, you know, most people would say, well, where do they spend, you know, the majority of their time, right? And the, 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 the sort of, Obvious answer that pops to most people's heads is things like Vim, Visual Studio Code. That's actually not true. Like they spend the majority of their time in their communication platform and in meetings. <laughs> like, and that might like, depending on your organization, that might be Mattermost or Slack or it might be email. But that's the reality of where you spend the majority of your time. And we have such poor tooling in this area, right? Um, and so that I think that's one of the missions that we're really kind of set on trying to fulfill is just giving that audience, that technical audience, the, the tools that they really want. Yeah, I would love, I know, I know Atlassian will never put it out. I would love for there to be a plugin for like Jira that like tracks how much time you've wasted on Jira. So like I can show people like I, I, the metrics are great. Yes, we can get fantastic, you know, numbers and all those graph charts and pie charts. And it looks, it looks fantastic for those, you know, manager meetings. But yeah. at the same time, how many hours are getting wasted because we want those pretty metrics because you know, there's so many things that it's like it does, but it doesn't do well enough. So it ends up causing you more time than what it should to do something. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I know one example is if you use, if you like write test suites in Jira and you're going to run them, 
the the plugin and maybe it's just the version that I've used but like when you click the start there's a little button for play and it's supposed to start the timer <laughs> and then as soon as you change tab to go to the web application that you're trying to test the timer stops because you're no longer in Jira and it's like hold on why are you tracking my time in Jira instead of you know from the start to the stop it's like it wasn't thought out well for the actual developers who are trying to use the tool I, I think that's the biggest problem with a lot of this tooling. And you can even make very, like, it's, it's not just in developer tooling, right? Like, it's also in sales tooling. Like, Salesforce is the exact problem you have, you describe people have in Salesforce as well, right? People, salespeople go there and put in all their information so their managers can get these pretty charts and dashboards and understand sort of rhythm of the business, right? They have the exact same thing in the engineering world, right? People go into Jira, tools like that. They got to make sure everything's updated so executives like myself can like, oh, yeah, like this looks like it's on track. <laughs> um, and so that that's where it's really hard because it's one of our sayings, like, right? We want team productivity um, over like individual productivity. But that team productivity is most important. It's not necessarily reporting a dashboards. It's it's how and where your team actually functions and does its work. Um, and I think that's. Well, lots of times people miss in their tooling, right? Like, don't get me wrong. Like, we do it too. The dashboardy stuff for execs is what's kind of sells, and you know, GitLab has the same kind of thing. A lot of us do. Um, but the reality is, the people who use your product every day, those teams, like those are the ones that you really need to show value to. So. Yeah, and I don't want it to sound like I'm knocking on you know the value of metrics and giving that data to your executives because no, 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 that's actually really good for you know, the executives to go. Yeah. You know, this one feature we've been spending a ridiculous amount of time on, and only one client wanted it. Meanwhile, thirty clients have been asking for this other feature to get developed and improved on, and we haven't been spending developer time on. It's like that's really important, but it would just be really nice if it could be captured kind of efficiently and seamlessly as a dev does his job. Instead of, oh, you also need to do all this housekeeping as well. Yeah, no, completely agree. <laughs> so the next thing actually builds off of kind of ragging on Slack and the Atlassian tools at the same time. And what I think you guys do brilliantly is that you actually allow people to run Mattermost themselves. It's not the as a service as pretty much it. You can actually run it yourself and the business can kind of own that in their own infrastructure. Was that kind of a a core focus that you guys had, or was that something you guys came to after thinking about it? Or what led you to come up and commit to businesses can run this. It's not, they have to pay us to run it for them. I think it's a little bit of both. Like we, we were frustrated because remember, if you go back to our games company, we were using several of those sort of tools that you mentioned. Um, and, and one of them was really frustrating because we were actually migrating from one to the other. And just to get our own data out, we had to pay them, right? And it's just like, this is, it's the most mind-boggling experience, like data locking experience ever. Like, this is our content. It's our intellectual property. And I, we have to pay you to get access to it, right? It's just, it's just one of those mind-boggling things for us. So I, I think for us, that was a not necessarily like run it yourself or on-prem was a core concept. But I was seeing for us, like what we call open data was sort of just like open source, right? Like people love open source, open source code. That's awesome. You know, for us, it was really this concept of open data. You own the data. You can do what you want with it. You can take it where you want. You, know, you can run it on-prem, uh, you know, and we, we have really interesting clients and customers and community members who are kind of split. Like we have some people who are very security conscious. So think like governments and stuff like that, who really care about data and from a security standpoint. Uh, we also have really large communities that just care about data from a privacy standpoint, right? Like, no, I just want to own our own data because we don't want anyone else to be able to see it um, from a privacy standpoint. So we definitely get both. And that that's what's awesome about it, right? You, yes, you can, you can run it wherever you want to run it. You want to run it in your own cloud, your own hardware, great. You can do that. If you want to pay us to run it, we'll run it for you. Um, those types of things. But you know, for us, that's a you know that was one of the core concepts early on. Was exactly that. We were frustrated by like having our own data held hostage. <laughs> we're like, all right, there has to be a better way. <laughs> um, and so for us, you know, that 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 actually led to us making a very conscious decision to just choose plain vanilla SQL. So we run MySQL and Postgres as a database. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons for that was exactly that. We wanted people to be able to easily get their own data out, do whatever they want with it, do their own transformations on it, do their own analytics and reporting on it. And it was one of our sort of, you know, very sort of, you know, when you look at, at least back in then, like today, it's easy to say like, oh yeah, Mattermost is, you know, um, picked all the right, or is running on all the, the, you know, the bedrock of technologies. But we picked Go, what is this, seven years ago now? I don't know how long, more than five years ago. We picked React, same thing. Five years ago now, and when you 
Look at both. Go is a lot farther along, but when you look at React in that time frame, those are like risky bets. Um, both of those are actually risky bets. Even Go was very risky. It was very hard, hard to hire Go people. Um, they just didn't exist, you know, five, seven years ago. Um, but, you know, for us, we decided to make a very safe choice in terms of database or data storage technology. And we just chose plain vanilla MySQL, plain vanilla Postgres. Um, because that's what we realized. We realized a lot of these communities and companies are going to run and run it themselves. They're not going to have the expertise to scale things like, you know, Cassandra or pick some other really cool NoSQL technology. But a lot of people at that time, even today, oh, yeah, SQL database, no problem. We can run this and we can scale it. And it's pretty easy, right? And it's only when you get to the really crazy... Some of our really crazy large customers as it start to become a problem, but, but for the most part, that's been very successful. And, I, and that, like I said, that, for me, it just ties back to this whole open data concept. Like we love the, I have this slide that I picture, it's exactly like that. It's like open data is the foundation, open source is built on top of that. And then we have our, our sort of plug-in framework that's built on top of that. And, and the whole point of that whole stack is just extreme flexibility. Um, yeah, I'd like to dig into the open data thing because that is something that like, the way you you frame that I think is is fantastic because open source and open data go together perfectly. And it seems like so much of the time, the open data side is just completely forgotten or not even like ignored. It's like, you know, wow, we don't care about that. And obviously, I understand that there's the big players in the in the industry, you know, the, the FANG people. Uh, they really don't want that because they want to own everything and they want you to have to pay them for everything that you think you own, which you don't because they do. Do you think that we, as time goes by, we're going to see companies and businesses focus more on open data? Or do you think that there's a, a lot of you know institutional resistance against it? I think it's definitely both. Maybe open data, I love open data as a concept. But I think for businesses, it might be maybe too extreme. But I think one concept all businesses can get behind is you own your own data. It is yours, right? And so I think that's where like a concept like open data, it really helps them. Like, and you see this already with things like GDPR in Europe, right? I mean, that's more on a personal level, but like it affects companies as well, right? We're like, no, you, you know, they're, the, they're, they're the owners of that data. They're the ones who get to decide where it lives in terms of physicality around the world and stuff like that. And so I think with the way the, because it's one of those really interesting things, right? Like it's really changed a lot in the last even two to three years. Like if you rewind, maybe it's more like four or five, but like you rewind four to five years ago, a lot of these companies and vendors, like data lock-in was a feature. Right. <laughs> no one talked about it. They didn't put it on their website. <laughs> but, 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 you know, like even with cloud vendors, right? Like, like you know, like their services and stuff like that is a, is a, is a lock-in feature, right? And now you're starting to hear these things like commoditizing cloud resources and multi-cloud and all that stuff. Um, and I think data is going the same direction. Um, it's just taking a lot, a lot longer for it to catch up, unfortunately, like I said, unfortunately. Now, it probably would, would be smart of us to kind of define what we mean by open data at this point, because what we're talking about is, you know, company ownership of their own data, because there's also the aspect of open data, which is open data like open sources, which is it's out there for everybody to see, which I think there's actually an argument for that as well in some aspects, not necessarily, you know, on the business informatics side for internally, but, you know, externally. But I just wanted to make sure we were clear on kind of the framing of that. Yeah, actually, you bring up a really good point. Yeah, there's the there's the, you know, open data aspect of, let's say, like cancer research, which I agree should be open and free to everybody. And then there's the open data concept of like, no, the company, this is the company's data or your individual data and you own it. It's your intellectual property and you can do what you want. with. Actually, having worked at a company that did AI stuff before, um, this actually raises a, another question of mine, which I've wondered for a while and I've, I've asked people about, is that is on the open data side of like the cancer research stuff and the statistics and stuff like that, where the data is fully out in the open, there are also privacy issues around that data as well. And one thing I found interesting is that a lot of the AI research that's going on, those data sets, there's some that are open, but a lot aren't. And there becomes that question of, you know, in, in software development, you know, reproducible builds are really important. Like, I need to be able to show that this code will compile to do the same things every time. And we don't have that on the AI side. Now, having come from, you know, worked in a company that did some AI stuff, do is that something you see that will eventually come around? Or is there kind of a pushback against that happening? I think there's definitely a pushback. I hope it comes around. I think just like anything, like people don't, you know, people in the AI industry don't realize this, but like that is a competitive data set. Like it, like a lot of the, like 
don't get me wrong. I don't want to discredit anybody doing AI research. Like right. a lot of those algorithms and stuff have been built like years and years ago and they're fine tuning them. They're making them incrementally better, but you're really only as good as your data sets, right? Like that's the data sets that you train on, the data sets are already tagged. And, and that's where like, it's super competitive in the sense that exactly that when you want to create these email models and stuff like that, you're only as good as the data sets you can pump in. And so obviously the companies that have the bigger and better data sets, it's a, it's a strategic advantage, right? So, yeah. So the, those large companies don't want to give it up in the world, I don't think. But I think for the betterment of some of those things, I think we should, right? I think I think some of those data sets should be open. And you're right. There's privacy concerns and there's other things. Um, you know, that that's like with anything. Um, but I think I think the more people can get access and open those things up, the better the world will be in terms of advancing our research and, and other things like that. But that, that's really the dirty secret, right? Is you're only as good as your data. It's like, yes, you're as good as your algorithms. But like I said, a lot of those, and I don't want to do any disservice to it, but a lot of those algorithms really haven't changed much, right? Like, <laughs> um, and you're, you know, basically the data sets have gotten better. The tag data sets have gotten better. And the machine processing power has gotten better. And that's why you're seeing tons and tons of really cool advancements. Like I said, I don't want to do any disservice because there is right. a lot of cool yeah. advancements as well. But like, I would say that bigger advancements is just that the beta data sets and the better horsepower to actually process those data sets. I think that actually ties back into what you were talking about before with businesses owning their own stuff. Because as, as long as, say, Google has your data, they can use your data for their models. Like, they can hoover that up. But if you have the ability to take your data away and go home with it, well, that directly impacts their ability to use your data. Because they want it to be theirs. That's exactly right. Like, And that's, you know... A large part of these services that run like, you know, SaaS services for email and whatever, exactly that, right? They're, they're training on all these data sets and they are getting better and better. But like the reality is they're getting better because you contributed to that data set and you're not getting anything out of return for it, right? And that, that's where I, you know, exactly that. I'd love a system where it's like, you can either say, hey, I don't want to use my data or if you do, you have to make it available in this way. It's back to me, back to the community. Um, even well, there's that big old hubbub love about uh, what is the the GitHub thing that uh, oh Copilot yeah yeah <laughs> same kind of thing right like wait a minute you used a bunch of you know people's IP to build something that's really cool don't get me wrong um, and like I said they're 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 you know they're having to work through a lot of those issues now but uh, but I think that's a great example where 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 it'd be nice to be able to mark like hey, like, you know, you are the copyright owner of this stuff or whatever, and, and this is how I want it to be. This is how I want it to be used. Yeah, there's definitely advancements that can be made there. It's just, yeah, there's a lot of tooling that needs to be kind of worked on and fixed because when you can just hit tab or enter and just reproduce someone's yeah. code, like, mm, okay, that might be a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I know it's open source and all, but you can use it. You just can't say it's yours. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Like I said, I think things like Copilot are really cool. Don't get me wrong, but I also think they also do raise a lot of mm -hmm. legal, ethical kind of concerns as well. Yeah. So taking a step back and looking at kind of the broader Linux, you know, BSD, open source kind of ecosystems, what are the things that you see people focusing on and developing now that kind of gets you excited for tools that we're going to have at our disposal in the future? That's a great question. Yeah, tools. I think for me, it's all the AV stuff. Like we're dabbling in this. You, you see all the the you know the zooms of the world and stuff like that, and you know the Google Hangouts of the world. Like there's really, I mean, there's Jitsi out there and stuff, but like I don't think there's been a lot of advancements in open source in this area. There's a lot of the foundation, like WebRTC runs, you know, runs a lot of this stuff, which is open source. Um, but I think just seeing more in that area, more in terms of you know. AV tooling um, that can really help this area um, catch up to where some of the, 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 the more commercial vendors are, if that makes sense. Um, and that, I think that's where I would love to see a lot of growth in this area. Um, you know, because as, as modern, you know, and as cool as, especially in you know, this remote work world today um, of AV stuff, like I still think it has a, you know, a ways to go. Um, you know, we, we even held a MatterCon virtually in, in, um, in a VR system, right? And that, it's, it's a long ways from actually, it was really fun. Uh, you know, it's a long ways from it being there. But I think systems like that, that become more open source or have more open platforms or more open data or whatever it is, I think that's where I would love to see a lot of advancements. Because I think 
like I said, it was very premature. We hold we held what we call MatterCon, which is our you know our our, our company conference. You know, so I don't know, 150 of us more than that actually showed up to it, right? And it was really cool and fun. Uh, it definitely had some hiccups, <laughs> but you can kind of see, like, for at least those who truly embrace the remote lifestyle, you can kind of see, like, okay, like I could see, like, not today, but I could easily see 10 years from now, 15 years from now, where you know, some subset of this technology is being used for these types of things. And so I think the more in those types of areas where you can see a lot of open source growth would, would be awesome or amazing. So you don't, you don't have to answer this, but uh, was doing MatterCon in VR just a business excuse to expense all the VR headsets for everybody? <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's a great company perk. I mean, we, we, so we hold a MatterCon every year. We mm -hmm. typically try to pick someplace nice and exotic. We fly the entire company. We fly a bunch of our community. So we pay as a company for our community members, some of our top contributors to fly out there. Um, and we realized like, and so it's just a budget item we have in the budget. Um, and we realized like, hey, we really want to get the company together. What can we do? Couldn't do anything in the time of COVID. Um, what's the next best thing? Okay, let's do this. And it was actually, you know, like anything, it's way cheaper <laughs> to buy, yeah. to buy, you know, Oculus headsets versus flying them all to some, you know, Caribbean islands. <laughs> yeah, flights and hotels rack up real quick. Yeah. So, uh, so I think it was a win-win, and, and it was fun. It's like we've always been one. We've all we were fully distributed before COVID. Mm -hmm. We fully distributed remote after COVID. Um, so we, it's something a lifestyle we've always embraced and pitched and pushed. Um, and so for us, it was just natural to want to try it. Like, hey, let, like you know, it's like on one hand, it's a lot of money. On the other hand, it's not that much money. You know, to just try something out and see if it's beneficial to the company or not. Um, the surprising thing is, is like we we still do social activities and stuff using the VR headsets and stuff like that. So there's still a lot of cool, interesting. Like there was obviously all the hubbable around MatterCon where we did it, but then right. there's just people organically using it after the fact is too, which that kind of shocked me. Uh, I figured it was more just like novelty, like oh, we're gonna do this, it'll be fun, let's try it, right? Um, and like I said, that's where you can kind of see some of the hints of the future, right? It's more than, it's definitely purely novelty right now. But you can see some of the hints, even in our organization, where it's not quite novelty. It's kind of transcended that social bridge or whatever. Um, and so I think, you know, in the future, in five, ten years, like, my hope is that it becomes more and more mainstream. Yeah, and once you buy the hardware, you've got it and you can use it. You know, like the hotel room, you don't pay for it once and then use it every time you want. Like, you got it for that one spot and then it's gone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I can see where VR has a, a place for kind of, you know, companies that are fully remote. Um, because I think there is something that a lot of people downplay with the actual benefit of collaborating in person. This is why I personally love conferences because being able to sit down with somebody, you know, at a table and go over something in person is so much easier and more effective than even trying to do it like over a zoom call where we're doing a screen share, like there's something about that real world experience of actually being there and being around someone and not just, I've got two boxes in front of me. One is a disembodied head and one is my code. Whereas in VR, while it's obviously virtual, there still is kind of that environment that you're in that allows you to kind of feel like you're there. The one thing I really loved about VR was exactly that. You didn't get Zoom fatigue. You didn't feel like everyone was staring at you. You could be in a kind of conference room and you could realize like there's people over there having a conversation. Let me walk up to them and participate in the conversation. So there was those little nuances that you don't really think about on a day-to-day -day basis that are actually really big. They really contribute to like sort of stress, mental fatigue, however you want to describe it. Um, that don't, that that VR fixes some of those things. Um, but I, I agree. We, we, like I said, even though we're a food distributed company, 100% agree. There's no substitute for in-person stuff. Like, we that's why we do MatterCon. We actually even allow our feature teams to meet up once or twice a year. So we get the entire company together. But then whatever kind of group you work in, if you guys want if you want to meet up, we're like, great, here's budget, go meet up, you know, and they try to do it more regionally and stuff like that. Because there are those things, there's just, there's working together, obviously, but there's also this those those sort of rapport things that we're still just human at the end of the day. And those types of rapport things are really built quickly in person, right? Um um, and, that, and so we still see a lot of value in that, even though, like I said, we're fully distributed. We'll never, you know, we'll never not ever be that. Um, um, 
but there there is value to sort of meeting in person, building rapport, working together in person. And that's what like Mattercom's fun because we just get the entire company together. We do some company level stuff, some community level stuff. The feature teams are really fun because they just get together to work. So kind of like you described, it's just like, let's come together. We're all working on this. Let's sit in this, you know, sort of, you know, like I think we just had one semi recently in Madrid where all the Spanish people got together and just rented a big flat and just worked for a week, right? And it's just one of those things that builds that rapport. And it's really, and I think people are experiencing this now, but like for me, that was one of the weirdest experiences, right? There was people who we who I have worked with for like three or four years. This is pre-COVID even three or four years who I had never actually met in person, um, you know, and it's one of those weird things when you get together and you're like, wow, you are way taller than I imagined, or you're way shorter. It's like the weirdest thing because you have all these preconceived notions built about people and then you meet in person and it's just all thrown out the window. So it's, I enjoy it. I think it's super fun to sort of get those meetups in and stuff like that. Well, since Mattermost is kind of a, you know, business communications platform, um, I, I look forward to you guys putting out your, your VR platform. Um, if you could, if you could get that out in the next week or two, that'd be, that'd be great. I really appreciate yeah. that. Um, <laughs> <You're right. laughs> so to flip kind of the question that I asked on its head, and we kind of did touch on it a little bit in our conversation there about VR, but what are the problems in, in tech that you see that we as the community of developers aren't focusing on that maybe we should be? I, I think for us, the, the, this is one that we struggle with. And I think every open source project struggles, and we've been trying really hard. We have a lot of different strategies for this, but like, and I don't, it'd be interesting, like I said, we've been talking to other open source projects and see if they feel the same way. I know most of them do, but like as open source, we are really good at getting developers to contribute, right? Like we are horrible. I think most of the industry, open source industry is horrible at getting non-developers to contribute. So we've been putting a lot of time and thought into how can we get documentation people to come contribute? How can we get designers to help contribute? How can we get product managers, like pick your non-developer poison. And it's one of those really weird things, right? You know, it, it's it relatively, it's, you know, and I know other, you know, open source projects struggle with getting community members to help out and stuff like that. But relatively, for us at least, it's, it's relatively easy to find a developer in the community to help or do stuff or like, hey, that's a great idea. What about blah, blah, blah. It's really hard. I think as an industry, as a whole, as a body, like it's really hard for us to encourage those non-developers to participate. And I, I have yet to see, we, we've been trying a lot of different experiments. We've been trying a lot of things to get like designers involved. And maybe it's just the nature of those people versus developers. We, don't, we haven't figured, we haven't cracked that nut yet. And I haven't seen anyone else who's really putting any energy or effort behind it either um, in that sense. And being able to, you know, we're so good at like welcoming and getting developers into the system. At least at, at most open source projects are, at least at Mattermost we are. We're like, here's all these tickets. They're all labeled very intricately like easy first contribution like here's a whole you know there's all this documentation around like how to easily contribute to all these things and there's all this like onboarding and roadmap that's just kind of funneling these people into the project and that really doesn't exist for like design or test or documentation um and i and, and like i said maybe it's a pipe dream of mine but i would love to see a really vibrant open source community where their non-dev functions are as strong as their dev yeah, it's definitely a problem that exists. The actually, when I think about it, the only community that kind of really comes to mind that I would say even has a you know, what would be the best way to phrase that? That kind of has a handle on it would be the Fedora community. But that also may be just a byproduct of the absolute massive size of that community that they've been able to find the people that kind of are already in their community that have those interests. Are like, oh wait, I, I use Fedora. I've used it for eight years. I'm also a designer. I could help. Whereas kind of pulling those new people in is, is always is always a challenge because there's kind of this mindset, I think, that a lot of people have outside of open source that it's just for developers. Yeah, so, exactly. You know, if, if you're if you're at a conference somewhere and somebody were to walk up to you and say, hey, I don't I don't know how to write a line of code, but I, I would love to be able to help and, you know, to pitch in and maybe build a career out of this. What what kind of advice would you give them? I, that, yeah, that. Yeah. My advice would be exactly that. Like. Go find an open source project you love. You know, Mattermost is open source, so Mattermost is great. But there's so much stuff out there, right? Find something where your interests and align. And, and even if you're not a developer, just start contributing. You'd be amazed at the uptick. If you joined a, a you know, a user group or what, you showed up to anything somewhere. And you like, if you showed up to me, exactly, if you showed up to me at a conference, like, Corey, I'm not a developer, but I love to write documentation, like, 
you know, where can I help? I'd be like, ooh, let me tell you where you can help. And I think that's true with if you showed up just about any open source project and you said, I'm a, you know, I'm someone who loves to write documentation. Where can I help? I think you'll get people like, like trampling themselves to sort of help you help the project. Same thing within test or same thing within design, right? Especially some of the more, you know, UI front end focused things. Like I think you would get people tripping over themselves. <laughs> so like, let me help you. Like, let me hold your hand. In fact, we do that ourselves. So, so we do that with developers as well, but even non-developers, we have this program we call community develop, community buddy program. And that's exactly what it is. We take someone from our paid staff and they, if you want it, they sit with you and meet you and hold your hand and kind of talk you through the process of how to do stuff. And when you get stuck, they're there to help. Um, and that, that's kind of, you know, we believe we've had very large success with that on our developer side. And so we're, we're, we're translating that into our non-developer side. Um, but I think even without a formal program, I think most open source projects who have the need for those things would, would sort of trample each other to like, yeah, here, let me show you, let me hold your hand and show you how you can help. <laughs> that, so that would be my advice. Exactly that. Like, whether it's show up virtually or show up in person at a conference or just start, you know, um, investigating some open source projects that are interesting to you from a technology or, or use case or whatever it is standpoint and just start joining their forums or whatever it is um, and just start just start raising your hand and saying like, hey, I'm here to help. Here's my skill set. And I think you'll get a lot of people who, do, who, who will be like, oh, thank you for coming. And just for our own plug, like we have community.mattermost.com. That's our community server. We've literally run our company and our open source project from that server. So I don't know, I think it's like 13,000 plus of us sit there. All of our paid staff sit there. Um, and I guarantee you, if you pop in there and join some of the channels and just raise your hand, you'll get uh, a bunch of people sort of swooning over you. <laughs> so. Well, that's great. I love projects that, that dog food their own, their own stuff. That's, to me, that really shows that not only do they actually believe in their product, but they're committed to making it work because they use it. Yeah, exactly. We, we actually have community-daily.mattermost.com, which is actually our daily build. So if you want to see cool new features or you want to live on the edge of excitement, <laughs> you can even dog food it that way. <laughs> so, That's great. Well, Corey, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with you today. It's been, it's been great talking with you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It's been, been a great conversation. <laughs>